And then they walked off and then they were, you know, people were waiting around for them to play an encore and Ryan walked back out, dug through the cords and beer bottles on the stage, found an acoustic, plugged it in and played avenues off Stranger's Almanac. And the whole time I was watching it, that was when I went, oh, my God, I completely get it. This guy is a fucking genius. And this is amazing. I can't believe how good this song is. I can't believe that that guy is singing this song that he wrote. Hello and welcome to episode number two of The Zach Kuhn Show. Thanks for tuning in. Earlier this year, I was out on the road tour managing an artist in Europe and having never taken a band overseas before, I knew I would need some advice. So I called up my good friend and tour manager extraordinaire, Thomas O'Keefe. His advice was this, never lose the money. Everything else on the road can be forgiven, but if you lose the money, you are never trusted again. I thought it was good advice. I ended up not losing the money. And when I decided to start this podcast, I knew Thomas would have to be a guest. His stories from the road are like no other. So if you've ever wondered what it's like touring with some of the biggest artists in the world, then this episode is for you. Okay, let's dive in. Thomas, we are live on the podcast. Thanks for coming yes, on. Yes, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Very good. Very good. Can't complain given what's going on. I know. It's unbelievable. You hanging in there? Yes, it's unprecedented. This is just unlike I've, I have a 12-year-old daughter and I had to explain to her this is nothing like this has ever happened before. Right. Not in our lifetimes. Not in our lifetimes. Not in our lifetimes. Right. Unbelievable. Okay, so I want to dive right in. How do you meet Ryan Adams for the first time? How did I meet Ryan Adams for the first time? I was living in Raleigh, North Carolina in 1996, and I was tour managing. The first band I ever tour managed was a band called Luster, L-U-S-T-R-E. They were on A&M Records. They And the summer of spring, summer, fall of 1996, I was out with them. And I was friends with them, and I, that was my first tour manager job. And um, at the time, Ryan's first band, Whiskey Town, was in Raleigh as well. So I knew of Ryan, but I had never met him. I'd seen him at the stores. like see, I used to see him at a beer store that we both frequented. But um, his manager, Chris Roldan, needed to hire a tour manager that was lived in Raleigh because the band Whiskey Town was based in Raleigh and Chris Roldan and his partner, Jenny Sparandale, both lived in Austin, Texas. So they really needed somebody on the ground. So quite honestly, I probably got the job because I lived in Raleigh. So that's where they called me in early 19, in spring of uh, 1997. And that's when I got the call to tour manage them. And then that's when I met the band and met Ryan. So give a little context to my audience, what was the alt country scene like in Raleigh? I mean, now looking back, it sort of is a scene that you could compare to like Grand Village in the sixties, but what was happening at the time in Raleigh with alt country and, and why was Whiskey Town such a significant band? Well, and the the the, the, the alt country scene in Raleigh in the mid nineties, Raleigh was a, was a small town, you know, it was a small college town. But Raleigh is one of those strange towns that's akin to like Dallas, Fort Worth or Minneapolis, St. Paul, where there's Raleigh, Durham and Chapel Hill. You could live in Durham and I could live in Raleigh, 
and we would live two separate lives in two separate towns. The only thing we would, the only thing we would really share is the airport. So, but in that town in Raleigh, Durham, you had a town basically the size of Nashville, but you had three Vanderbilts there. You know, you had, you had NC state in Raleigh, you have Duke in Durham and you had Carolina university of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. So it was a huge college town and there was a huge music scene and lots of people lived there and lots of bands just happened to be from there. I mean, right at the mid nineties, you had whiskey town was from there. You had the squirrel nut zippers, which were a huge band for a minute. You had cry of love was from there. You had super chunk, which is the indie rock band that still exists today. That was from there. And I'm sure I'm leaving a few out, but Ben Fold five was from there. So there were quite a few. My guys and luster were from there. The Whiskey Town was a set was a was a like it was pretty easy to figure out very early on. Like after seeing them once, I was like, oh my god, this guy Ryan Adams is an insane genius. Even you know when I met him, he was twenty two or twenty three years old. And did other people feel that way? Like, was he bubbling under the surface or like who was thinking that he was such a genius? Well, I mean, there, you have to remember that any time, you know, I was from a band in Charlotte called Anti-Scene that still exists. And anytime, you know, you're in a band and in a, in a town, there's people who are going to be a lot of the, a lot of any of the negativity comes from is just envy, you know, Oh, screw those guys. Why did they get to do this? My band's better, blah, blah, blah. You know, that kind of stuff. So, you know, there were people in, in Raleigh that disliked Ryan and disliked whiskey town, but I honestly think most of it was rooted in envy because a Ryan was an amazing is and not was, is an amazing songwriter. And he, it was very, if you were paying attention, it was very obvious, very quickly. So a lot of people were envious of that. And of course, as soon as he had a manager and as soon as he started fishing around for a record deal, it didn't take long for that to happen. Okay. So you get the call to torment him. And I just read your book and there's the story about you go over to his place and it, it, that's, that's the first time you meet him, right? You go over to his townhouse, and he's an absolute mess. I mean, first thoughts when you meet the guy, are you like, what are you thinking? Well, I mean, he's like, you know, they basically, I think they've hired me to babysit him because, you know, I'm going over to his apartment. There was, you know, I lived on one side of NC State, and he lived on the other a couple miles, away, a mile, two miles away. And he was... um you know, he's asleep at three o'clock in the afternoon and he's supposed to be getting on a phoner at three thirty or something like that. And he can't, you know, trying to wake him up. But once I spent any time with him at all, I quickly realized what a, you know, he was a fan of my band as when he was a kid. And, uh, he was a, an absolute student of rock music, you know, through and through. So I immediately realized how smart, he was there was no he's one of the smartest people i've ever met so you get this gig you go over to meet him i'm assuming there were dates on the calendar that you had to be out on the road by a certain time how do you integrate yourself into the band and what does the process look like to get the band in shape and to get out to start playing those first dates well we had to do it i had never seen them before so i didn't know what i was getting into so the first round of dates that we did we just did a couple shows and 
you know, it, it became very apparent to me how green they were and how, you know, they didn't have a set list and they would, you know, this wasn't a situation where I was going into it where I'd seen the band before or I knew of the band. So I, the first time I saw Whiskey Town was one of the first, was the first show I ever did with them as a tour manager in, in uh, Illinois somewhere. So uh, Carbondale, Illinois. So um, seeing them the first time, I immediately had a mental list of notes like you guys need to start having a set list you need to stop wasting i mean they would they would play a song and they would stop and then they would stand there for five minutes trying to figure out what the next song was going to be so i just immediately just sort of immersed myself into that and just trying to you know train them you know hey you really should have a set list and they you know fought me on that tooth and nail oh man we're not like that i said well you love the rolling stones the rolling stones have a set list Sure. Rolling Stones don't stand there for five minutes in between songs, you know, and wasting time. So it was just a, you know, I had never, I, I had, you know, in when you're on tour with a band, you, you, when you, when you, you give them per diems, which is the essentially lunch money. So if we're out on tour, you know, even even with a bigger band everyone gets paid a per diem. So they have a certain amount of money that they're getting paid every day. So they have food money. And normally nowadays, the per diems, they just put it in your paycheck. But back in those days, it was always given in cash. And you usually give everyone their per diems once a week. And I had to give them their per diems every day because they weren't fiscally responsible enough to not take their week's worth of per diems out to the bar and piss all the money away. And the next day they're starving to death and they're broke. Unbelievable. Okay. There's so much about Whiskey Town that I, that I want to dive into, but let's go back for a minute. So you're working out of Raleigh right now, but, but are you from Raleigh originally? No, no, no. I grew up in Connecticut and then I moved, my family moved to North Carolina when I was a teenager and I grew up in and around Charlotte, North Carolina. And that's where I played in my band anti-scene that is still, they still exist and they're from Charlotte. And then in two, in 1996, I got the job offer to tour manage Luster, which was a band that I actually was almost a member of. Uh, they wanted me to be the bass player. Thank goodness. I became the tour manager instead. And, uh, and then I moved to Raleigh at that point. So I was living in Raleigh, North Carolina from 96 on. So you and I, through many conversations, have always talked about our mutual love of punk rock. How did you get into punk rock? Who turned you on to it? My friend, Jeff Clayton, who's the singer of Anti-Scene, he was really one of the first punk rock dudes I ever met in the very early 80s. And, uh, you know, he he was the he's definitely the one that the first person I ever knew that listened to that stuff. And he immediately turned me on to all that stuff in like 82. And then I was always loved all that stuff ever since. And then were you already a guitar player or a bass player? How, how did you? No, I was just, I just started playing at that point, basically. And me and him started a band on the side called Jeff Leopard, which turned into my band, Judas Bullethead, which still exists. And we played a couple shows last year, actually. Judas Bullethead has played like eight shows in our whole 35 year career. And uh, we have three seven-inch records out. You can find them on eBay, but every once in a while, the one will pop up. But uh, they're they're super limited pressings, and they're pretty hard to find. But um, 
So we did that, and then I played bass guitar in Anti-Scene from 90, 1988 up until 1995. Okay, so what's the first time when you really hit the road? Which band is that with? With Anti-Scene. The first show, when Anti-Scene had been together for five years, and they had never played two shows in a row, consecutive nights, like on tour. We actually, the first Anti-Scene tour we ever did, we left Charlotte on Saturday morning. We played Myrtle Beach Saturday night. We spent the night. We played Charleston, South Carolina, Sunday afternoon, and then we drove home. And at this so, point, you're you're actually playing in the band. You're not tour managing. Yes, yeah. You're, you're I was playing big, but I booked all the shows. We used to book a lot of shows, and I would book shows like a week's worth of dates up to the Northeast. We'd play like CBGBs, Pyramid Club. Okay, you know, how would you book the shows? Places. How how do you know I, who to call and, and what to do? I, that was I sat on my phone. There was no internet, and there was no nothing. This would have been like nineteen. 88, 1989, I would, I would, I would look at the map and I would say, okay, we're playing in Charlotte today on the way up to Boston. We need to play in Washington, DC. Then I would call a record store. Some kid would get on the phone. Hi, school kids records. Hey, is your manager in? Yeah, sure. Put this because I was trying to get the older person on the phone. Then I would get the manager of the record store on the phone. Hey man, I'm in a punk rock band and we're on our on tour. Where should we play in your town? And then the guy would usually tell me, you know, hey, you should play this place, don't play that place, blah, blah, blah. And because, you know, this would this is like the old fashioned way of Googling something. You would just right. call somebody and hope to get somebody on the phone. And I would make a zillion phone calls and eventually book you know, eight or 10 shows that way. Now, of course, in the bigger cities like New York City, we knew we wanted to play, we played CBGBs or we played the Pyramid Club or we played Maxwell's in Hoboken. But in the How hard was it? I mean, we look back and there's so much aura and history to CBGBs. At the time, was it competitive to book or if the day was open, could you basically grab it? Well, I did have a, I did, I did have a supreme advantage with that in that Anti-Scene had put out several records before they ever really, really started venturing out of the Southeast. So when I was the guy calling CBGBs or the Pyramid Club to try to get a show, it was easier for me to get a show because I was taught, referring to a band that they had, in some ways, they had already heard of versus me and you starting a band from scratch and me going, Hey, can we play? You see what I mean? So right. it was a little bit easier probably because of that, because anti-scene had already existed for several years by that point. And, you know, cause anti-scene started in 1983, but I wasn't really booking our shows out of the Southeast until 88. Okay. So you're playing bass in the band, you're booking the shows and who was the first act that, how did you transition from, player to tour manager well that was with the band luster they would they wanted me to be the bass player of luster you know the anti-scene had had come on it we had just finished a, a large tour of u.s and europe in 95 and we were going to take a take a break and our drummer started a band with a friend of mine and they wanted me to be the bass player and they're like, we're going to start another band, you know, and do some more, play some more shows. And I said, no, I just can't do it. I was working too much. And then they found, found another bass player. And next thing you know, they were about to get signed 
And I was like, oh, my God, I blew it. I can't believe it. This band, that I, they wanted me to be the bass player, and I couldn't do it. I didn't do it. Now here they are about to get signed. Because keep in mind, this was around 1995, and what had happened was, you know, all the Nirvanas and Pearl Jams and Smashing Pumpkins and those bands got picked up immediately. But then the labels went out and signed the second wave of alternative rock. And most of those bands had just started because alternative rock had kind of just started. So a tremendous amount of those bands that got signed, these labels were just swooping up every band they could find that was slightly alternative rock. And Lester was one of those bands. In fact, Watershed, who is the band that my co-writer of my book, Joe A-Strike, was the singer of, he his band suffered the same fate. They got signed in around 93, 94, and they, they had, you know, it's kind of like trying to build a skyscraper with no foundation, you know? It, it's kind of hard to do if you, you know, if you sign a band from the, out of the garage, you know, it, it, there's no fan base to fall back on if things don't work. So you're on the road with this band, and are you basically, you've never done this before, did you talk to anyone about what a road manager does? Were you basically living on your street smarts? How, like, how did you know how to get the band from point A? Was it sure? You know what it was? Is, that's a very good question. I was doing it the whole time I was in Anti-Scene, and I didn't realize it. I was the tour manager of Anti-Scene when I was playing in Anti-Scene because I was the one who would say, hey, guys, we better leave if we're going to make it to Albuquerque by 6 o'clock. You know, I knew how far we were driving every day. I knew logistically what we had to do. And I always had a keen sense of that. So probably from being the guy that booked all the shows. So quite honestly, the transition from playing bass guitar in a band to being the tour manager was actually quite easy. So before you get right before you get the call to go out with Ryan Adams, what was the gig? Were you out with a band tour managing and now you were going to just transition to tour managing? I had just, well, I had, I had spent the, the, the most of the year from spring to fall of 96 out tour managing luster. Then they got dropped and I spent the, the winter of 1996 delivering pizzas, which is, you know, one of my favorite jobs I've ever had because it's pretty great. You get to speed around and, smoke cigarettes and listen to the Ramones and get paid $20 an hour because no cops pull you over when you're delivering pizzas. And then, um, then I got a job. My second job was tour managing Degeneration, which was one of my absolute, still to this day, one of the two favorite bands I've ever worked with. They, um, I just absolutely loved that band inside and out. I've, every day when I was tour managing them, I looked forward to them playing every single day. And I still remain great friends with most of them still to this day. So I did a tour with them. And then when I came home from that tour, that's when I got the call for Whiskey Town. Okay. You're in the early stages of Whiskey Town. You're seeing them play. You go, guys, we need a set list. You're basically putting them through boot camp and, you know, and, you know, getting them into shape. You hit the road for those first couple shows, and I just read the book, so I kind of know what happened. But tell my audience, like, like what happened on those first couple of shows with Ryan and the band? Well, it was just it was just an endless barrage of 
you know, insanity. It was just an endless, you know, they were just insanely green and insanely incompetent and insanely, uh, you know, he was really good. It was very obvious that he was really good and he was very insanely talented more so than perhaps anybody, but he, you know, they just had no idea what they were doing. You know, I, I, we played a show in Toronto and I remember, one of them did, we were in a van and I remember one of them like lifted the hood. This isn't in the book, but he lifted the hood of the van up and was digging around in the engine. Oh, we may have lost Thomas. Do we lose Thomas? We may have lost Thomas. Hang on. We're, we're going to get him back. Okay. We're back. So he's digging around in the van. Okay. So we're pulled over. We're in, I, this story is not in the book. You'll have to edit this out. This story is not in the book, but we are in um, we're in Toronto, and one of the band member guys is digging around in the engine compartment of the of the van we're driving. And I'm like, "Why are you? What are you doing?" And uh, he said, "Well, man, uh, I hid my weed in the uh, in the um, windshield. I put my." put my weed in the windshield in a plastic bag and stuck it in the windshield wiper fluid thing container in the front of the car in the van. I was just like, dude, you can't do that. Why? First of all, you didn't even tell me you were doing that. Okay. There it is. Yep. I got you. I can hear you. So do you want me to start that? Do you want me to do that again? No, I, I got that piece. So, okay, okay so they're, they're very green. What, I mean, Ryan is such a, at, you know, at times it seems like he could be such a rebel and at times he could just be a very innocent kid. Looking at you, it's your job to boss him around and get him places on time. And he's like a little punk rock kid. Would he, was he responsive to you? Like, how did, like, what was the relationship between you and Ryan? Well, at that time, I I would always say this. I benefited by the fact that, you know, Ryan was a 12-year-old kid listening to Anti-Scene and buying our records when he was a kid. So he knew knew that I came from a valid place in his mind because, you know, he knew that I was this guy that played on these punk rock records. So I must be valid. So I, I had a higher percentage of success with him than maybe somebody else would at the time. But that's not to say that I had a 100% range. My old theory was this, 80% of the time I could get him to do the right thing. 10% of the time I could cover up whatever mistake he made. And 10% of the time we were fucked. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you're playing these shows, you're doing these warm up shows to get ready to go on a Stranger's Almanac tour. Stranger's Almanac was their second record, the first one on Outpost, Gethin. You're getting ready to go on the Stranger's Almanac tour. Finally, you hit out on the road, and you're in a van at this point. Were you in an RV doing these shows? No, we the first round of dates we did in in a van. When we started the Stranger's Almanac tour, which would have been summer of 1997, we actually took an RV out. And it was, it was honestly nearly 20 years before I could actually get back into an RV without like having this horrible feeling of dread come over me. Like, like it was, it was like almost like 
PTSD or something. Like if I stepped, like if I was at a concert somewhere and they were using an RV as a promoter's office, I would go into the RV and I was like, Ugh, can we, can we settle outside? <laughs> I don't want to be in here. You know, it was, okay, it, so- it, it, it messed, it messed everybody up. So how many of these Whiskey Town shows would you say are going great or are total train wrecks? Like, like what percent well, of the strangers are back? I would say, I'm not sure what I, I can't remember what I said in the book, but um, basically about 10 to 15% of the shows would be a life-changing renew your faith in music and humanity type show. Like you walk away from it and you can't believe how good it is. I would say 15% of the shows were that. I would say 70% of the shows were either them just phoning it in or just just half-assing it, for lack of a better word. And then I would say 15% of the shows were some sort of punk rock shenanigans, ruining the show, pissing everyone off, you know, that sort of thing, which I was always conflicted with those shows because I would watch him do something like destroy the show and piss the audience off. And I was like, God, this is awesome. You know, the punk rock guy and me loved it. And then I quickly realized, oh, shit. I'm the tour manager. I also have to go try to collect the money from this guy who's going to be super pissed at me and 15 minutes when I go in there and try to collect the money for a show that lasted 25 minutes. Okay. So give us an example of a show that was a total train wreck and one that was just sublime, like you were saying. Well, I mean, you know, the, the one that, the one that would be the one that really inspired me is, is that, or the one that I would say made me realize that how great a songwriter he was is they played a show for the re- album release show of Strangers Almanac, it was at the it was at the brewery in Raleigh in uh, I think June July of 1997, and right around the time that album came out, might have been a little bit later, and um, they came out, they played, they half-assed their way through the show. It, it was just it was sort of uneventful, and then they walked off, and then they were you know people were waiting around for them to play an encore, and Ryan walked back out dug through the cords and beer bottles on the stage, found an acoustic, plugged it in, and played Avenues off Stranger's Almanac. And the whole time I was watching it, that was when I went, oh, my God, I completely get it. This guy is a fucking genius, and this is amazing. I can't believe how good this song is. I can't believe that that guy is singing this song that he wrote. You know, but when he started the song, I was like, oh, God, they just blew this show. And then... Two and a half minutes later, I realized that his career was going to last as long as he wanted it to. Okay, what was not the show necessarily just... true today, but, <laughs> but yeah, right. It's a little, until the it's a little last year. past its prime, but but at the right, time yeah. it it, it, it looked time, good. Yeah, it's, yeah. At that time, two and a half minutes later, I was like, "Wow, this guy can can do whatever he wants to do with the rest of his life if he wants to do it because he's that good." Now, for a show that I've seen him ruin, there was a show in Aspen, Colorado, and we stepped off the bus, and it was cold. It was winter time, and uh, they gave us. I remember they paid us either a thousand or fifteen hundred bucks. I can't remember, but they paid us three hotel rooms, 
And the three hotel rooms were far more valuable than the thousand bucks was because, you know, getting a hotel room in Aspen in the middle of ski season is pretty difficult to do. So we woke up that morning, we got off the bus, and he immediately looks up and we're right in the middle of downtown Aspen with the ski slopes zooming over our heads. And he goes, what are we doing in a ski town? And he's super pissed. Like, dude, you've known for two months we're playing Aspen, Colorado. He had no idea that Aspen, Colorado was a ski town. So right. we go inside. We, we, he goes, just let's cancel this show. I was like, no, dude, we, we, we need these hotel rooms. So we all took our hotel rooms. We all got a great nap. I remember waking up at like 2 in the afternoon. I felt like a million bucks. We go over to load in. We go to sound check. He sound checks. He goes, tell that guy. The dude from the club was from Raleigh. He was like, had gone to NC State. He was super stoked we were there, you know, because we were from Raleigh. And um, he goes, tell that guy, tell that Raleigh guy we're canceling the show. And I was like, no, man, we can't. We can't. We have to do the show. We have to do the show. So that night we go back over to the hotel We're we're walking from the hotel over to the show at like 10 o'clock at night, man, tell that Raleigh guy, cancel the show, cancel the show. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I said, man, tell him I'm sick. He knows you're not sick. He watched you sound check. Come on, dude. We've already used the hotel rooms. They've given us just play the show. So we go into this place, the double diamond. It's the, it's still there. And, uh, there's like 200 people there. Kevin Costner, the actor, is there. And Ryan walks up. They start playing. He plays like three songs. And then he turns his Fender Twin Reverb up to 15, hits the Echo Plex, and just lays, hits every, turns on every single pedal on his guitar and just lays down on the floor. And the whole room is just swirling like, and it won't stop. And he's like laying on the floor, hitting the E string, detuning it, going, for 25 minutes. Not, it seemed like 25 minutes, 25 minutes. Like, imagine if you took an electric guitar in your living room and handed it to a two-year-old kid and just let him bang on it for 25 minutes. That's what this was. So the band walks off stage and goes to the bar. Ryan just lays on the stage for 25, not, it seemed like 25 minutes, actually 25 real long minutes. We shut the PA off. It didn't matter because the amp was so loud. And he just laid there and did this for 25 solid minutes at about Three quarters of the audience left, and then, including Kevin Costner, and about 25 minutes later, he just sat up, and he stood up, and he retuned his guitar and started playing the next song. And then the band walked out on stage, and they finished the set. And how was the second half of that show? Oh, it was just fine, but there was but there was nobody there. Everybody, there nobody left. there. <laughs> so at okay, the end so, of the night, oh, yeah. I, I had to go collect the money, and the guy was so pissed at me. I thought, I, you know, when you're, this doesn't happen to me too often, but you know, when you're in a situation where you really think someone's about to punch you, and you're thinking, okay, he's about to take a swing at me. I'm going to move my head this way so I don't get punched. I mean, right. that's what I thought that guy was going to punch me. I really did. 
Hey everyone, thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Some of you may know that I run an email newsletter called the Nashville Briefing. It comes out three times a week and it really gives you a front row seat to everything happening in our industry. So if you're interested in learning more or subscribing, you can go to nashvillebriefing.com. Okay, back to the show. Okay, so there's a moment in the Stranger's Almanac tour, which is sort of like a sacred moment for all bands, where you go from the trailer or the RV, and you end up going to a bus, and you hire a bus driver, and you bring on an extra crew member. What was the moment where, as the tour manager, you were able to look at the big picture and say, guys, we need a bus? Well, it's because it's, it, it was because they had, they had a... Um, they had a um, six people in the band. So mathematically, it starts to make sense. When you have six people on stage, you know, and a couple of them are girls, you know, that's four or five hotel rooms. So when you start to look at the van versus two hotel rooms, eh, that might not work, but you start to look at the van versus four or five hotel rooms, it starts to make sense. So that's where, you know, we just kind of pushed the argument to where we would uh, eventually, that's how most bands, you know, most bands start in the van and then they have the van and trailer and pretty soon, or they get the sprinter van nowadays. And then they push it up to being in the bus with no hotels. And it just escalates from there. Okay. So then you have the really hard task, which is always difficult from, from bands is going from the bus back to the the van or back to the sprinter, which you end up doing when the band goes out supporting John Fogarty. So what's That's the correct. conversation right. when you tell the band, guys, we're in this luxurious bus, but Ryan Adams, guess what? We're going back to the sprinter. Well, actually, that was my idea. And it was it, it was initially a good idea. I thought what happened was we were doing a tour the summer of 97 and we were opening for Fogarty. And it was the first time that Fogarty was playing, Fogarty was playing all the songs from Creedence Clearwater Revival. He was playing basically the Creedence Greatest Hits set. But this was, that's not a big deal now because he's been doing it for years. But this was the first tour where he was, he was doing that. You know, he had kind of resolved all his problems with that whole camp. And he, he was up there and he's playing the set you wanted to hear, which was the Creedence Greatest Hits set. And um, so we were opening for him. And Ryan was living, you know, half the time with me and half the time with his girlfriend in New York City. And the bulk of the tour was in New England and in the East Coast. So I, I, after I kind of looked at the dates and thought it through, I said, hey, listen, I sat them all down at practice one day and said, uh, I know this may sound crazy, but we should consider the idea of doing this tour in a van and what would happen is we would uh the first week of it's going to suck because we're going to be in the van and we're going to be riding around but then after that we could go we could just simply stay in new york city and just sort of hub out of new york city for like you know nearly two weeks and of course ryan was interested in that idea because him hubbing out of new york city meant that he was able to go every single day we had a lot of days off so we would do we do a show in poughkeepsie and then we would just leave and go back to new york and we were you know keep in mind we were opening so we were done every night at you know 8 30 or whatever time it was 
So uh, we would get in the van and drive from uh, from Poughkeepsie back to New York, and then we'd have a day off or two days off, and we would keep going and keep going. And uh, so that's what put us back in the van. So, you know, the thing about it is it doesn't, you know, there are times you, you use the method of transportation that makes the most sense. You know, it doesn't matter what band it is. I mean, even me nowadays, I would use, you know, sometimes the van is the quickest thing to do. Sometimes the bus is the quickest thing. Sometimes the Gulfstream jet is the thing. It just depends on what makes the most sense. Okay, I want to move on because there's so much to talk about, but I encourage everyone to read Thomas's book, Weighing Should Derail, for the full story. I mean, how did you decide that you wanted to write a book about the band? Well, I had always thought that I would do it because I, I sort of felt an obligation to do it. I saw Whiskey Town more times than any human being that ever lived on Earth. That's a simple statistical fact. I saw them 174 times. And I remembered it all. My memory is pretty flawless, not to sound like I'm bragging, but I spoke to all the other, in the process of writing the book, I spoke to all the other ex-members, and none of them remembered anything. You know, it was 20, more than 20 years ago. And uh, if I had not spoken to anyone else, the book would have been 97% the same book. So I remembered everything. I had all the stories. And, you know, if I fell over dead, that stuff would be lost in the wind. So it was an important period of time about an important artist in the infancy of his career. So I was the person who was the only person who could really write this book because I was the only person that remembered everything and saw it all. And so I felt somewhat of an obligation to do that. And how did you know how to write a book? Have you ever have you ever written a book before? No, like, I immediately you... no, of course not. I mean, I I co-wrote the book with my friend Joe Astrike, who was the um, the singer of the band Watershed. Joe Astrike wrote previously wrote a book called Hitless Wonder, which I would highly recommend. That's the story of his band Watershed and then getting signed. It's around the same time period of the mid nineties. But I didn't do it. I didn't write. I mean, I'm donating the money from the book to a women's shelter in Raleigh because the story happened in Raleigh. So I figured any money that got paid off of it should just go back to Raleigh. So I wasn't doing it for the money. I was just doing it because I felt like the story needed to be told. How does your time with the band end? What happens at the end of the story with Whiskey Town and, and you? Well, I mean, it's just um, the band ceased to exist. You know, Ryan, uh, at that point, you know, they had made a third album and it never was, didn't come out till years later. And Ryan was keen to start a solo career. And uh, he moved, actually moved here to Nashville and lived here for a while. And then, uh, and then that was the start. The end of Whiskey Town was the start of his solo career. So everyone, there wasn't, you know, my job tour managing Whiskey Town ceased to exist. At that point, I started tour managing the band Train, you know, from, you know, from the band that's famous for uh, Drops of Jupiter, Meet Virginia, Hey Soul Sister. Okay, so how, so how do you get the call to go out with Train? Well, keep in mind, Train, it was the same person that called me about Whiskey Town, you know, keep in mind, Train actually opened for Whiskey Town at the Whiskey in September of 1997 after the Fogarty tour. So I saw Train as an opening band 
back then, you know, so this wasn't that long. What was only the first tour I did with train, we were playing, it was the first tour where they were headlining and playing like three to 400 seaters on their own. So it, the train was the train that, you know, now that's a big, uh, you know, shit band that would play in arenas or sheds. When I started with them in 1999, they were still playing the exit in. Okay, so at this point, your only major label touring experience is with Whiskey Town, and you've got Ryan Adams, who's a genius, but a lunatic. When you transition right. to now you're out with Train, like, like what have you learned out with Whiskey Town? Did you realize that actually the tour managing thing is not that difficult? Or like, well, no, like what, was, what was the transition? Well, the, tr the transition was punctuality because I remember being in New York city. There's a scene in the book where I'm in New York city. I just started with train. I come downstairs to the hotel lobby at like five 30 in the morning. And I come at like five lobby call is five 30. I come down at five 32 and they're all sitting there and they're looking at their watch. Like, Hey, where have you been? And I was like, you know, the whiskey town people, I had to, I had to threaten them physically threaten them to make them wake up in the morning if they had to be up early, you know, and, and the, the train guys, they were very, very, you know, you can, anyone can say what they want to say about that band, but those guys are the hardest working band in the music business, period. That guy can sing every single day. We just, he would do 10 shows in a row. So many times you couldn't even count how many times we did it. He, they were just complete workaholics. If we had to, if lobby call was 4 a.m., they were in the lobby at 4 a.m. I mean, it's just they were insanely punctual, insanely on time, and very diligent and, and just as hardworking as they had to be to make it happen. So that was so, so that was an that was an insane 180 degree difference. The train guys were willing. Okay, we're back. Okay, okay. the train guys you were talking about. I just said that the difference between the two bands were the Whiskey Town people expected it. They felt like the world owed them everything they had. You know, the guitar player told me once, not Ryan, but the other guitar player in the band told me once, he said, the, the only reason our label signed us is they wanted, they needed a cool band on their label. And I was like, no, dude, they signed you because they, they thought they were going to make money selling some of your records. No, they don't need that. I told the president of the record company that, and he spit coffee out of his mouth laughing. It's, they, they, it, they felt like it was, everything was owed to them, and they already earned it, and whereas the train guys were very down-to-earth but insanely hardworking and insanely uh, diligent and, you know, it was all about they wanted to, they were going to do whatever they had to do and work as hard as they had to hard work. And I still maintain they're one of the hardest working bands in the whole music business today, even today. Okay, so in Whiskey Town, you're playing clubs, you're doing sheds with Fogarty, but you're opening with right. Rain. You're actually going out and doing bigger and bigger rooms. And I would imagine that as a tour manager, there are new skills you have to learn as you're playing in you know, these bigger and bigger rooms and venues. And did you guys, did you get into stadiums or arenas and amphitheaters with, with train? Yes, absolutely. But it was a slow build. You know, we did train when I started with them in 99, they were playing clubs. 
We did a bunch of stuff in 2000. Then 2001, Drop to Jupiter was the biggest song. And their previous manager had them out on tour. We were out on tour the summer of 2001, opening for Matchbox 20, playing all the sheds. So that was that was a good place to be. Maybe not, you know, in hindsight, maybe not the best thing for us to do, but um, it still was really good. That's where we were, like when 9/11 happened and all that. And then we changed managers and we continued. But Train had three albums that sold really well, and then the fourth album kind of stiffed, and then the singer made a solo record and that really stiffed. So around 2009, when the Save Me San Francisco record was coming out, that was kind of make or break, you know, if it had that record not had a hit on it, uh, it probably, we probably would be back at the county fair sort of. And instead it blew up. That was the biggest song on the planet, 2009, 2010, 2011. And it pushed us all the way back to arenas and sheds. Okay. So when you're going into arenas and sheds for the first time, what did you have to learn as a tour manager that was different from doing clubs or supporting a show? Now this is your show. So I'm assuming there's a lot more production and, and staff to overlook and things like catering. Like, like what did you have to figure out jumping to that level? Well, I mean, you have to have a competent team with you and no one is as good as every, you know, you're only as good as your weakest link kind of thing. You know, in, in that at that level, being a tour manager, you have to have a very competent production manager and you have to have competent production coordinators and people like that because you can't if you're a tour manager in a van and trailer and you're playing the exit in, you can do everything. If you're the tour manager of the van playing Bridgestone, you can't do everything. So you have to have some help and you have to have some competent people on your side. So hiring those competent people becomes an issue. And it actually was tough for me because I had only worked for this. I'd worked for the same band for so many years that I didn't know a lot of people. I didn't know as many people as I should give, given how long I've been doing this. Because I, you know, when you work for the same band for a long time, you just have the same crew and the same people and you're, you know, we were never really opening for anybody that much. So it was hiring people at times was, you know, a little bit difficult. We'd hire some good ones, but you'd also accidentally hire some bad ones. Sure. Okay, so everybody before, everybody yep. promotes themselves in a way that, that may or may not be true. You know what I mean? Like I hired a production manager once for train years ago, and this guy was so far in over his head. It was ridiculous, but he took the job. And I think that's a horrible mistake. I remember right after Whiskey Town, I got offered to tour manage Kid Rock right around the time of right when his first single was exploding. He was just huge and all over the place. And, you know, he would, was, you know, they were just, he was full blast, you know, living that life. and. I knew that if I took that job, that I would get chewed up and spit out in about a week. So I turned the, I did not take the job because I knew that I wasn't up to it, you know? And I think that's an important lesson. I think you have to know when to say no. If somebody called me today and said, 
hey, do you want to be the production manager for the Rolling Stones stadium tour? I would say no. I'm not a structural engineer. I don't know if the water pipe underneath Vanderbilt Stadium is going to collapse when I put the stage in there. You know what I mean? I'm not an engineer. You have to have an engineer do that. Now, if they said, you know, do you want to tour manage XYZ band? Sure, I could do that. You know, but and if you got the call to tour manage the Stones when you go out? Yeah, my dream job, quite honestly. I mean, I have my, my job I have right now, I tour manage Weezer nowadays, and I love them, and they're one of my favorite bands, and they're great guys, and we have a great time, and I'm as happy as I could be with that job as I am with any job. In the back of my mind, my dream job would be to tour manage Cheap Trick, only because they're my favorite band from when I was a kid. But fair enough. As close, I'm as close to that as uh, Weezer was my favorite band. 25 years ago. I wasn't really a kid 25 years ago, but that's probably as close as I'll get. Right. Okay, so how do you end up in Nashville? Well, I actually quit train after in 2012, fall 2012, and I took a job in a management company here and worked as a manager for about a year, year and a half, and then that management company folded. So I went back to work as a tour manager, because I found myself, you know, first of uh, 2015, I found myself unemployed, which is really kind of weird. So I tour managed Sia for a little bit, and that was great. She wasn't doing a lot were you, of stuff. When you were at the management company, were you working with any acts that are still around? Yeah, or yeah, working, yeah, working with Ashley Monroe and Striking Matches were the two bands that we worked with. And uh, I think Ashley's still around. That's striking matches. So they're both, both fans are still around. Um, but we, uh, but the management company went out of business. And then I went back to tour managing. And then I tour managed Sia for a while. And uh, she did just a few things here and there, did SNL with her and some other stuff. And then the Grammys. And then um, I tour managed Third Eye Blind Dashboard. Third Eye Blind, we did a tour with with Dashboard Confessionals, so I did that tour, and then I got the call to do Weezer, so I've done Weezer ever since, which has sort of been, you know, kind of a part-time to three-quarter time job, so that's what enabled me to have the time to write the book well, a couple of years ago. Okay, so who who gives you the call for Weezer? How do you get that call? It came from the, came from the same management company that I worked at. Okay, so you're out with Weezer, and then this is so probably the three bands that you, you've been out for the most shows with are probably correct me if I'm wrong, Whiskey Town, Train, and Weezer. So now you're out with Weezer. And yeah. and what is the what is the office persona or what is the what's the vibe on the Weezer tour versus Train and, and Whiskey Town? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that when you work with these, we're all grown you know, in the Weezer camp, we're all grown up, you know. So I just think that uh I think that's the, I mean, it's obviously far more akin to being like train than it would have been like whiskey town. Cause whiskey town were a bunch of kids getting drunk and with train it's, you know, nowadays, you know, I work with adults nowadays. So, you know, there's just, we're busy and we, we do what we have to do and we knock it out and that's it really. It's pretty uh, uneventful. Right. You wake up, you play the show, it goes smoothly. Everyone's professional and you're on yeah. to the next gig. Exactly. Yeah, we do. We do. Uh, uh, it's all it's it's easy, much easier. It's uh, 
it's uh, it's just more like working with adults. You know, it's like the difference between working at working, you know, with adults or working with children. You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, it's different. Two quick questions. What's your favorite hotel in America, and what's your favorite venue in America? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, my favorite, that's hard to say, because, like, my favorite venue in the world, like, Train played the Greek theater in Tarmina, Sicily, which is unbelievable, overlooking Mount Etna while it's erupting. You know, uh, it depends on what you're talking about. Like, I love uh, the House of Blues in Boston or, or the uh, amphitheater in Mansfield because my buddy Tim McKenna, who you know works there, you know, who always right. makes every day super easy. So it depends on if you're talking about, like, the staff or if you're talking about the location or, uh, you know, one of those kind of things. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that uh, I don't really care for Red Rock because it's so high up. You're out of breath that whole day and it kind of sucks. But, uh, you know, the, the amphitheater tours are fun. I, I would just say a shed tour is probably the best because, you know, when you do a shed tour or an arena tour, these places were meant for that. You know, we did an arena tour. We did an arena tour a year ago. And every day we were in, it was the Weezer and the Pixies. Every day we were inside. I never had to watch for thunderstorms and worry about shows getting canceled or postponed. You know, the arena is the ro- is the proper place for rock and roll. The life looks the best. It's not 100 degrees. There's air conditioning and heat. You know, look at ACDC, for example, the greatest rock and roll band ever. They never did a shed tour in the U.S. Never. They only right. play in arenas because the arena is the pristine location for rock and roll, not a shed. Okay, and best so, hotel. And it's, and it's your best hotel. That's a tough one, too. I was just thinking about that recently. I know uh, I stay at the Plaza Atene in Paris. The last time I was in Paris, it's the hotel that Jack Nicholson is looking for Diane Keaton and something's got to give. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing hotel. I loved that. But in terms of U.S. hotels, uh, I don't know. I don't know. There's so many good ones. It's hard to pick. You know what? One of my favorite U.S. hotels is the uh, Waldorf Astoria in Chicago. That's an amazing, amazing hotel. Wow. Okay. But so if you'd any... asked me that question, if you'd asked me that question in the Whiskey Town days, I would have just handed you the. I would have told you that Super Eights are way better than Motel Sixes because they have more right. table panels. <laughs> so it just depends. So you're out with some, you know, household massive acts. You're doing arenas. Any moments where you've, you've met an idol on the road or, an, or someone you've admired has come out and played with the band? Like, any situations where – or here's, here's my question. Like, are you numb being around these rock stars, or is there anyone that you're around where you actually go, that's actually pretty cool? I looked up to that guy since I was a kid. Well, of course. I mean, I remember I was out with Mandy Moore. I did a short tour with Mandy Moore in 99, and it was a coincidence. By crazy coincidence, Ryan Adams was still living at my house in Raleigh while I was out on tour with his future wife, which is an insane coincidence. But um, I remember being out with Mandy, and we played a show at the L.A. Forum with opening for the Backstreet Boys or Sync, one of the two. I can't remember. I think it was Backstreet Boys. And I walked around the corner, and Gene Simmons from Kid was standing there. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, I just, like, lost my mind. I could hardly believe it. So, you know, every once in a while, you'll meet somebody that uh, is like that. But 
you know, I, I don't know. I mean, to me, all of my favorite, you know, Paul Simon from Simon and Garfunkel said, the music you listen to when you're 18 is what you listen to the rest of your life. And to me, the rock stars that I look up to from when I was a kid, people like Angus Young or people like Cheap Trick or Kiss or somebody like that, in my mind, those guys are bigger than the people that I might even work with. Like, you know, Weezer is a bigger band than Cheap Trick in the grand scheme of things, you know, in terms of who the, how many, where they play and how many people show up and all that kind of stuff. But in my mind, I can't imagine that that's the case, you know? Right. So I, I would say I still, if I have any interaction with the people that I liked from when I was a kid, that's where I'm probably still, you know, get occasionally, you know, flabbergasted. Is there anything you still want to do? You've been on the road for so long. Do you ever think about anything else that that you would want to do at some point, or is are you are you happy being on the road forever? No, I mean, I think any I I, I think anytime you're busy doing stuff, you always look to the next thing and look to the next thing. I I it, I don't know for sure how much longer I'm going to keep doing this. I might keep doing it forever. I might keep doing it forever, but I ha- but I have enough time and opportunity i might write another book someday i might manage a band someday i mean there's just a zillion different things that you can do so i would i I, i'm not going to just do this i spent the last three years doing this and writing a book so now that now that the book kind of ran its ran its course i uh which of course the book was selling fine up until a year ago when all that stuff came out uh, and then it stopped selling. And also, the, the the any proceeds I get from the book are going to a charity in Raleigh. I had already determined that before that mess happened. But um, I don't know. I I would imagine that I will I will definitely. I'm in the process of figuring out what the other thing I'm going to do besides this is. Any big any great stories that we've missed or anything that we haven't touched on that you feel we should mention? Well, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of stories in the book that are pretty ridiculous. I don't think, um, I don't think the book is really a, uh, I mean, you read it, you, you tell me, I don't, you know, I don't think it's really like a negative, nasty, um, time capsule about Ryan Adams or anything. I think it's more to me, to me, the book is more the story of this young genius and the first handful of people who figured it out. You know, because I'm, I'm no different than anyone else. I just figured I knew Ryan Adams was a genius in 1997. That's so, I mean, I'm not surprised that his career exploded like it did. I am, of course, surprised about the events that happened in the last year, but uh, where now his career seems is, you know, temporarily on some kind of hold. But uh I, I was never surprised that he was going to be successful because I always thought that he was, I always thought of him as that he was just a, he's a genius. He's just a genius that I know. So I wasn't surprised by that, but I didn't think, but the book in a way is really more along the lines of this is, this is the story of a young genius and the first people who tried to help him out and get it, keep it going. It's not meant as a like negative anti Ryan kind of book at all. Right. It feels like it's a story between you and him and you're and you, you're kind of playing the older brother figure, maybe the Yoda figure. And and he's playing, you know, Luke Skywalker. And 
and you're you're you know you're guiding him you're guiding him through the tour. It's really it it really is incredible. Look, as someone who's I mean I've always admired Ryan as an artist. It's hard not to admire the work, but he's, I wouldn't say he's the artist I was listening to at 18. So he's not someone I looked up to, and I was surprised at how I couldn't put the book down. It was such an amazing story about that and about life on the road and 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 just it was such a rock and roll. Kind of the feeling you have watching Almost Famous when you go, man, it'd be fun to be in a rock and roll band. You read this book and you go, man, it'd be fun to be in a rock and rock and roll band. <laughs> well, that's what it seems like. It would be fun it until you're like out it there. Would be fun to be in a rock and roll band. <laughs> that's right. That's what people until always you say. get out there and then, and then it's anything but. <laughs> yeah, well, people say to me, it, it seems like you have a really cool job, and I was like, yep, you're exactly right. It's seems like I really have a cool job. I mean, you know, I'm not complaining. I wouldn't change anything. There's people, you know, Bill Gates will find something to complain about today. You know, it's just every job has a plus side and a, and a downside. You no, know, when I was getting out of my car at the Raleigh airport in 2010 and my three-year-old daughter was screaming because I was going to be gone for two months and I could hear her screaming as my wife drove her car away after dropping me off at the, at the arrive at the departures area, you know, that sucks. You know what I mean? That is, that is a sound that you don't want. Oh, did we lose you again? Okay. We're back. So okay. you were, so you were saying how you're, yeah. Every, every job has a good side and a bad side. Bill Gates will find something to complain about today. And, I remember being in the Raleigh airport in 2010 and my wife's dropping me off to leave the house for two months and I'm wheeling my suitcase away while I can hear my three-year-old daughter screaming at the top of her lungs while my wife drives away because she knows I'm going to be gone for two months, you know, and that sucks. They didn't tell you that when they sold you that guitar at Guitar Center. Hey, learn how to play this thing and you're going to get to do all this fun stuff. You know, they didn't show you that in the dirt, but, um, it, so there's upsides and downsides to everything. You know, I wouldn't change anything. I'm not complaining, but there are parts, there are parts of this job that are amazing. And there's parts of this job that stink just like any other job. So what, I mean, I know from knowing you for a while that you used to teach in a program through Catawba college and you would teach about the music business and tour managing when you're teaching kids about it, your job. Is it something you can learn in the classroom? Like, what do you try to get across in the classroom setting about what you do? Well, I mean, I think there's parts of it that you can teach somebody. Some of this stuff is just, you know, the, 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 thing, the thing about life, I think, is that to be truly successful, you have to pick a job where you are using your strengths and not using your weaknesses. For example, if you were a, I'm a terrible artist. Like if you wanted me to paint a picture for you, it would look like a four-year-old. If I did it, it would look like a four-year-old did it, right? So it's unlikely that I'm going to try to get a job as an album cover designer. Because if you hired me to do it, I would never, no one would ever pay me to do that. I suck at it and I would go broke if that was what my, if that was the career I aspired to. So I think some, in some in your career, you have to be honest with yourself and look in the bathroom mirror and say, I know I'm good at these things, and I know I suck at these things. 
So what job can I do that will enable me to use the things that I'm good at? And one thing that I'm good at and I'm better than 99.9% of people is if there's a problem and you tell me what the problem is, I can go, uh, and I can give you the solution and I can, I'm, I, I can put the blinders on. I can solve the problem. I'm a problem solver. Give me the problem. I will, I will think about it for 30 seconds and I will come up with the solution and walk us through the whole thing. So I'm very, very good at that. So that's one thing that this job really requires. So luckily I'm using the skills that I have, the things that I'm really good at, I am able to use them in this job. So I think that's really, really important because everybody wants to be a singer or everybody wants to be whatever it is they want to be. But if you're not, if you suck at it, <laughs> it's not going to work. You're just going to waste 10 or 20 years chasing after something that isn't going to work. So can you learn tour managing in a classroom or, I mean, do you have to get out and do it to really sort you of have to get out. You have to get out and do it. You have to ride. I can, I can teach you how to ride a bicycle, you know, in a classroom, but you have to get on it and fall off of it a few times. And that's just, I mean, the, the advancing, the, the part of tour managing in terms of advancing shows, making phone calls, asking questions, settling shows, collecting the money, keeping track of money, all those the the paperwork portion of it and that portion of it that can certainly be taught in a classroom but i always said if i was really going to teach a proper tour manager class i would drive you and three other kids out in the woods somewhere about 20 miles from the airport i'd pull over on the side of the road i'd flatten three of the four tires of the car and i'd throw your cell phone in the woods and i'd say i got to be at the airport in an hour get it done get it done. What would you do? You'd walk to the closest house and use their phone. Right. That would be a great course, actually. Maybe maybe we could do that. <laughs> <laughs> but you see what I mean? You can't because you have to teach. Now, I'm not 100% sure that you can be taught to think on your feet that quickly, but that skill and that ability to plow through the bullshit and solve, get to the meat of the problem and solve the problem and walk through, you know, the quickest way from A to Z. Most people look at, or at A and they see Z so far away. Oh, I'm never going to get there. I'm never going to get there. But the quickest way from A to Z is to first walk from A to B and then walk from B to C. And it's a methodical march to the end. And you just have to be able to do that under supremely stressful situations where you have 10,000 people at a concert and there's a line of thunderstorms 30 miles away. What are we going to do? The show must go on. Show must go on. Me and the train singer had a system. There was a whole summer where we got hit by thunderstorms every single night. And we had a system. If he was on stage singing and he looked at me and I held my five fingers up, he knew that that meant Finish the song you're playing and play the five biggest hits left on the set list. Because oh I was watching the thunderstorm the whole time he was on stage playing. But see, here's the thing is if he plays half the set list, everyone's going to be pissed because he's left off the songs off the second half of the set list. But if he, if they play for 45 minutes and they play all the hits, everybody's going to run to their car and not care. Right. 
Well, Thomas, this has, been, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know everything's a little bit crazy. I, I mean, as someone who makes their living on the road and tours are getting canceled now left and right, like, like the community that you're a part of, how are you firsthand? How are you seeing it affect, you know, the people that you, you know, interact with every day? Everybody's doing the same thing. Everyone is, everyone is doing the same thing. Everyone else is doing. They're all sitting at home wondering what's going to happen and wondering when things will get back to normal. And the truth is, I don't think anybody has the true answer to that. I know. It's a, I mean, it's, a, it's just a crazy that. Time. I wish. I wish I had a. I mean, it's an unprecedented time. This has never happened before. So what are we supposed to do? We're all just going to sit home, and and wait till things get back to normal, and hopefully things will get back to normal. And when the when it the good news is when it gets back to normal, everybody's going to be such a great self of sense of relief. It's going to be like the Roaring Twenties all over again. Right. So, so hang in there if you're a touring professional. And, hang in and there. Wait yeah. the I storm. think everybody's got to just, I think every, I mean, not just touring people. I think everybody in the world, I mean, who knows there, you know, in a week or two, there's going to be 40 million people not working. You know, it's just, it's, uh, it's a mess for restaurant people. It's a mess for touring people. It's a mess for bus driver. Every bus driver is sitting at home doing nothing. All of the all of our vendors are sitting home with nothing going on. I mean, it's just it's the whole world just kind of stopped. Do you interact with your team? Well, I don't know if you had dates planned during this specific time, but do you interact with your team on day to day basis, or is everyone sort of in their own in their own space? No, like, like, I what does it look like? I, I try to keep my I, my crew, my core crew, you know, which is about seventeen or eighteen people. I try to keep them constantly. You know, I'm updating them every few days when I find out anything different. You know, but so far it just seems like everyone is just taking everything and just pushing it, kicking the can down the road a little bit, and trying to, you know, get it. You know, the show, the people that had shows in. February or March or April or pushing them into the summer or pushing them into the fall. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Right. Unbelievable. I imagine we'll all know a lot more in a couple of weeks. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for taking the time. If anyone finds themselves at a Weezer show, keep in mind that Thomas is probably there working backstage, moving everything along, making sure it works like clockwork. And we appreciate you doing so because you're bringing music, the gifts of music to places where it's needed. So, so thank you so much, Thomas. We really appreciate you taking the time. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, you're in luck because we've got new episodes coming out every single Tuesday. Next week, we have an incredible episode with Joe Galante, the former head of MCA and Sony Music Nashville. The stories he tells about working with artists like Waylon Jennings, Brad Paisley, Kenny Chesney, and signing the Wu-Tang Clan are going to blow your mind. I'm so excited for you guys to hear this episode. Please tune in. The Zach Kuhn Show is mixed by Sam Heyman, and our theme music is by Justin Johnson. Massive thank you to Thomas O'Keefe for taking the time to let us talk with him. This episode literally would not have been possible without you, so thank you, Thomas. Lastly, if you want to keep up with us and everything we're doing, you can go to NashvilleBriefing.com to subscribe to our newsletter, and you can also follow us on socials. Everything is at Nashville Briefing. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Bye.